We're going to try to cover verses 1 through 20 this morning. And thank you to Corey for preaching so faithfully last week and covering some ground, continuing us moving through Romans. And this morning, you'll see on your handout the main point. Again, we're building on what we said way back in Romans 1, 18 and following that God's wrath is justified due to our sin. But Paul is nearing and he's, he's approaching really the, the, the change that's going to happen in verse 21. And even yesterday we were running some errands with our family and we were sitting at a stoplight and I'm writing notes to myself just eagerly awaiting uh, verse 21. But now, but, 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 but until we get there, Paul is making sure in the meantime that we appreciate verse 21. That we have a right understanding of verse 21. We, we will not appreciate verse 21 if we do not appreciate 118 through 320. If we believe there's an ounce of self-righteousness in us, if we believe there's an ounce of something in us that warrants God's justice, that our mercy rather and grace, that, that, that we deserve it, that we've earned it, if there is an ounce of that in us, listen, you will not appreciate Romans 3, 21 through 26. That's the point Paul is making. And in order for us to appreciate a, a grace and a mercy that is totally outside of us, he's going to show us again here that none are righteous. And he's going to use the Old Testament in verses 10 through uh, really 18, uh, the longest string of Old Testament quotations in the New Testament. He's going to use the Old Testament to prove his point. And, and that is his main point today in the text that we're looking at, not only to show that God's wrath is justified, but, but to help us to grasp this, and you see it in your handout, that every person regardless of their ethnicity, regardless of their heritage, regardless of any works that they've done. It, every person is in need of a righteousness, for here it is, from outside of themselves. We need a righteousness that's from outside of us. We're not righteous. And, and where he's leading is verse 21, that the gospel of Jesus Christ alone provides that righteousness that we're in so desperate need of. We need a righteousness that is from outside of ourselves. That is exactly what Corey explained last week in, in the end of chapter 2. Specifically verses 25 through 29. Where Paul makes it clear. Circumcision is of value if you practice the law. But if you're a transgressor of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. So if the uncircumcised man keeps the requirements of the law, will not his uncircum uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? And he who is physically uncircumcised, if he keeps the law, will he not judge you who, though you having the letter of the law and circumcision, are a transgressor of the law? And here it is. For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh, but, the, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that which is of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. And his praise is not from men, but from God. Paul is going to go to great lengths here because of what he just said. He's going to answer some, some questions 
that a, a Jewish person would have had to what he's just said. Maybe these are questions that he actually encountered when he was sharing the gospel in the synagogues or wherever Paul shared the gospel. Maybe these are questions that he physically ran into. Maybe these are questions that Paul battled with even in and of himself. You go to Philippians 3 and talk, Paul talks about being a former Pharisee. Maybe we'll see it even in Romans 7. Maybe Paul had a tendency even in his own flesh to go back to the flesh, to go back to things in and of himself and that tendency to say, but I do this, but I've done this, but I haven't done Listen, I think if we were all honest, all of us battle that same tendency. We know it's by grace through faith, and yet we have a tendency to go back and to, to start building up a resume as why God should have saved us or did save us. And when, when we do that, we are undercutting grace. Paul is going to make that very clear in chapter 4 with regards to Abraham. If Abraham did anything to warrant God's grace, it no longer is grace. It's a wage. And that's what Paul is making very clear here. He, is, he, is, he has got to go to great lengths to strip us of every ounce of self-righteousness. Because if we're honest... We are all self-righteous. We love to build up a resume as far as what we do or don't do, why we're better than the next person or why the other person is worse or why God should have saved us or didn't. We're very good at it. And, and Paul, is, Paul is under, he is, he is going to make very clear here, he's going to put Jew and Gentile on a level playing field with regards to their need for righteousness that is outside of themselves. And the issue in doing this is that for a Jewish person, it seemed that Paul was calling into question really the entire Old Testament. That Paul was calling into question God's covenant with Israel. That, that Paul was calling into question his promises toward Israel. That, God was calling into, that Paul was calling into question God's character. Really that he was contradicting the entire Old Testament. And the Jew is saying, then what benefit is there in being a Jew? And I thought about that this week as we were, we were up in the mountains and, and it's a different way of life up there, just a different pace and you can sit there and it's quiet. And I thought about this. You know, there have been times where, where I wonder, is it worth it? You may, you may wonder at times, is it worth it? Week after week, preaching and teaching the gospel, preaching the word, and you start to wonder, is it worth it? Suffering for the gospel. The stewards were very open and honest to hear and have been about, about this whole process with, with adoption and that. And I'm sure there were moments in their days and nights where they wondered, is it worth it? Does obedience matter? Does... does does bringing your children week after week and, and, and having them sit under Corey's teaching and now Michael and Heather in children's church, does it matter? The thought that from kindergarten to fifth grade, they will, they will go through the, the entire Bible twice. We can fall prey to wondering, does it matter? Teaching them the word. 
helping them to, to maintain a difference as believers to, to, to week after week. I have a middle schooler. He's actually Bradley turned 14 today. You know, seeing what he battles with on a middle school at a middle school level and, and, and trying to maintain, helping him to understand a biblical difference that if you call yourself a Christian, there's going to be a difference and there's going to be different. There's going to be things that you can and cannot do than all the rest of the middle schoolers and battling and, and wondering sometimes as a parent, is it worth it? Memorizing verses week after week in Awana. Maybe you're the volunteer in Awana and you wonder, does it matter? Bringing your kids week after week and pouring the word of God to them. You begin to question, does it matter? Youth group, does it matter? And here's the answer. Paul is going to say this and I'm going to say this for us today. Absolutely it matters. Absolutely it matters. Does it give your children an advantage? Absolutely it does. But here's where it stops. The Jews took that advantage and they believed it guaranteed them something. Namely salvation. That's simply because they were Jewish that they were good to go. That they were saved. And that's the same trap. Listen to me. That's the same trap that you and I can fall in today. That, that, you know what, I grew up in church, therefore I'm okay. Hey, I know all the stories, therefore I'm okay. Hey, I go to youth group all the time, therefore I'm okay. That's the same trap you and I can fall into. Beginning to believe that it's something outside of us or something that we do that makes us right before God. And a righteousness that's outside of the gospel. That's what Paul is saying. Is there an advantage to that? Yes. Does it guarantee salvation? No. Just because my kids are, are, are sons and daughter of a pastor doesn't guarantee them. They've got to personally respond to the gospel by faith. And what Paul is, and, and again, we can respond strongly to that just like the Jews responded strongly. And Paul's claim, again, that ethnicity or heritage or any other activity outside of itself guarantees salvation, again, outside of faith in Christ. That, that it wasn't heritage, it wasn't ethnicity, none of these things guaranteed salvation outside of faith in Christ. That's exactly what he says in verses 25 through 29, why I read them. What, Paul, what does Paul say? That it's the heart that God is after. That's why Jeremiah 31, Ezekiel 36, what was the promise? I will, give, I will put my spirit in them and I will give them a new heart. It's not these outside things. Again, foolish, foolish not to do those things. Foolish not for, to bring your kids to children's church. Foolish not to talk about the word of God Day in and day out. Deuteronomy 6 stuff, type of stuff at your house. Foolish, if, if they're in middle school or high school, foolish not to put them in a, in a student ministry. But does it guarantee salvation? It doesn't. Does that make them right before God? It doesn't. It doesn't mean that someone is saved just because they grew up in the church. And that's what Paul is getting after. 
it does, none of these things, do they, do they give our kids an advantage? Absolutely. Are they precious? Absolutely. Should we be doing them? Absolutely. Does it make them right with God? No. Does it matter? Yes. And those are the types of situations, that's the questions here that Paul is dealing with. And he will go, he knows that, listen, we'll go to great lengths to try to justify ourselves. We will go to great lengths to try to defend ourselves. We will go to great lengths to establish some sort of of righteousness of our own. And when we do that, we distort the gospel. And what Paul is doing here is he is, again, he is stripping everyone of their self-righteousness. And and the danger, again, you see it on your handout, the real danger of self-righteousness is that, here it is, it undervalues the gospel. If we bring anything to the table, if there's anything about us that warranted God saving us, that that, that we deserved God to save us, if if God looked at Chris and said, you know what, I really need that on my team, we undervalue the gospel. That's why Paul says in Ephesians 2, 8, 9, it is by grace you have been saved through faith and not by works. Why? 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 Lest anyone would boast. Why does Paul say it over again in 1 Corinthians? Again, in the chapter 1, he says all this stuff and he says, therefore, if you're going to boast, boast in God. Why would he say that over and over again? Because you and I love to boast. I'm probably not the only one. We, we love to bring a resume. We love to put forth a resume before others, before God, as to why. To why we're better than someone else, why we're not as wretched as someone else, why we deserve. Again, all of us have probably asked the question, listen, all of us in here probably asked God the question, why? At the very heart of that, I get it, I've been there. But at the very heart of that, here's what we're saying, that we deserve something better than what you're giving us, God. Right? We deserve something better. That in and of itself is a statement of, can be a statement in self I get it. I've asked it. And so what Paul does here is, is, is again, he's going to answer for the Jewish person, and then I'm going to try to bring it home for us. He's going to answer these questions on why they matter, but why they don't in and of themselves save you. And there's four objections here that Paul that, that we're going to look at that, and that Paul gives an objection and he gives the conclusion to help the Jewish person specifically understand the privilege that they have, but, but how that should propel them to trust in the gospel. And the first objection is this. They're going to all start the same. They're all sourced the same. And then the ending will be, will be different and, and will make Paul's point. The Jews, the first objection... And then at the end, I, I want to I bring this home and help us apply this specifically to our own lives because really, verses 18 of chapter 1 through 320. The Jews would self-righteously argue that Paul's gospel apart from the law, which put Jew and Gentile on equal footing and did not provide the Jewish people immunity to God's judgment. That's really the issue. Did, were, was the Jewish person immune to God's judgment due to their sin? 
the Jewish person would have said, if that's the case, here it is, it undermines God's covenant with Abraham. Look at verses 1 and 2 of chapter 3 as John read. What, then what advantage has the Jew? Or what benefit is the benefit of circumcision? Great in every respect. First of all, they were entrusted with the oracles of God. Clearly, in the Old Testament, clearly, go all the way back to Deuteronomy 7, and, and clearly, God, made a, God chose Israel. Go all the way back to Genesis 12, Genesis 15. Clearly, God made a covenant with Abraham and all of his descendants. Clearly, God set aside circumcision as a physical mark that, that put the Jewish person in distinction from the non-Jewish person. Clearly, he did those things. But these things did not provide immunity from the judgment of God due their sins. It didn't guarantee their salvation. And so the Jewish person would say, okay, then what was the real value? And their attack is that Paul is undermining these things. That Paul's gospel is undermining these things. And what he's really doing is trying to dispel any ideas that they have of self-righteousness. It's the whole issue of, again, when we get backed into a corner, clearly the problem can't be me. Clearly the problem has got to be you. Even to the point where we'll say, clearly the problem is not me, and here's where we'll go sometimes, clearly the problem has got to be on God. God has been unfaithful. And what Paul is getting at here, he's answering the question is this, does the Old Testament matter? Do the Old Testament promises matter? And Paul answers that in verse 2, great in every respect. He says, of course they matter. I mean, you, you can go to Deuteronomy chapter 4. Very clearly, they matter. Look at, listen to Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 7 and 8. For what, this, is part, this is Moses speaking again to Israel. Look what he says. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God whenever we call on him? Or what great nation is there that has statutes and judgments as righteous as this whole law which I am setting before us today. Clearly there was an advantage. They were unique in every regard. In, in, in Psalm 147, verses 19 and 20, he declares his words to Jacob, his statutes and his ordinances to Israel. He has not dealt thus with any nation, and as his ordinance they have not known them. Praise the Lord. Clearly, clearly, God had done something specific with Israel. Clearly these things mattered. And, and Paul in Romans 9 will, will deal with this more specifically to, to give us a quick foretaste of what he says in the chapter 9, verses 4 and 5. Listen to what he says, though. Clearly it mattered, but it did not save them. Who are, Israel's, who, who are Israelites? 9-4. To whom belongs the adoption of sons and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the temple service and the promises? Whose are the fathers and from whom is Christ according to the flesh? Who is over all? God be blessed forever and amen. Listen. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. You see the same issue. For they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. Nor are they all children because they are Abraham's descendants. But through Isaac your descendants will be named. That is, it is not the children of the flesh who are children of God. But children of the promise as regarded to descendants. Paul is building the argument. Again, he's building the argument here. The issue becomes, what do these promises mean? What's the blessing? 
And you see it on your handout. Paul is showing the Jews that their privileges brought upon them responsibility. These privileges brought with them responsibility when the Jews believed it brought security. To have the very word of God, huge blessing. To, to know their God like saw, we saw in Deuteronomy 4, Psalm 147, to, knew, to know their God that way, huge blessing. For God to be so near to them, to speak to them, to guide them, huge blessing. But that blessing brought upon them responsibility. It was not something that could be presumed upon. It needed to be responded to with obedience through faith. It wasn't some good luck charm. It wasn't a get out of jail free card when you get out of trouble. It wasn't something that could be presumed upon. Again, all of which we see Israel doing in their history. We see that. Why did they go into captivity? Because of those things. And these privileges brought, brought upon Israel a false sense of security rather than a prompting of responsibility and care and devotion and loyalty. That's where Micah 6.8, He has shown thee, O man, what is good and what the Lord requires of thee, to do justice, to love mercy, and to what? To walk humbly with God. There was a response. And the self-righteousness in the Jews, they ignored, they ignored their failures... They ignored their lack of loyalty. They, they ignored their, their sin to, to the promotion of, well, I'm a Jew. Well, I'm, I'm automatically in because of my heritage. I'm automatically in because, because of my forefathers. And what Paul is saying is this, is simply being of a Jewish descent is not enough. Simply being circumcised, not enough. It's a hard issue. Simply, look, today, simply growing up in the church, not enough. Simply coming to church, not enough. Simply going, simply knowing the stories, not enough. And, and what Paul is doing here, you see it in your handout, he was not undermining the Old Testament, but he was actually showing it was truly fulfilled by love and devotion to God rather than merely externals. That what should have prompted a love relationship, what should have prompted a wholehearted devotion to the Lord because of His graciousness and His, and His covenant faithfulness and all that He had given, what should have prompted faithfulness prompted presumption, carelessness. Again, what should have brought responsibility brought a false sense of security. And Paul, Paul is making sure they understand here that again, what I'm saying, this gospel does not undermine the faithfulness of God. It doesn't undermine the Old Testament. It doesn't undermine the promises. It actually fulfills them. Secondly, the second objection. Look at verses 3 and 4. What then? If some did not believe, their unbelief will not nullify the faithfulness of God, will it? May it never be. Rather, let God be found true, though every man be found a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. The second objection that the Jew would have had is that it nullifies. The word there is nullifies, that this gospel nullifies God's faithfulness. That if the Jew and the Gentile are on equal footing, that if they, they both need a righteousness outside of themselves, that that nullifies God's faithfulness. 
And, and here's where, again, where the self-righteousness begins to pop up, uh, especially of the Jews, that if they weren't secure and saved simply because they were Jewish, then the fault couldn't be theirs. It must be God's. It couldn't be that they were unfaithful. It couldn't be that they were disloyal. It must be that God was unfaithful. If Paul's gospel is true, then God has been unfaithful. And, if, and the issue on the table becomes this. If God's people are unfaithful, does this mean that God is unfaithful? If not every Jewish person of Jewish descent is in God's true family, then whose fault is that? Has God been unfaithful? And what Paul, how Paul answers that is verse 4, and he answers it in the, in the Greek in the strongest way possible, literally by saying, not on your life. If you're going to accuse God of being unfaithful, listen, here's the answer, not on your life. It could be like saying, not in a, today we would say, not in a million years. And what Paul says is this, that even if no person ever believed the gospel, if no person ever repented of their sin, even if every person alive was proved to be a liar, listen, God would still be faithful. That's how faithful God is. John Calvin said this statement right here is the, quote, the primary axiom of all Christian philosophy, unquote, that God is faithful. That even if every man was proved to be a liar, unfaithful, if none were saved, God would still be faithful. Listen to Psalm 116, verse 11. Again, all, this is what the psalmist says. He says, as I said in my alarm, alarm all men are liars. We looked through Titus when we talked through Titus. One of their sayings were that the, the Cretans were all liars. The issue is with the sinfulness of man. It's not with the unfaithfulness of God. That's the point. God is the one that can be trusted always, not men. No matter what, listen, no matter what, God is faithful. Even if the Jews in their unbelief, in spite of God choosing them, in spite of his covenant loyalty, in spite of all the promises, in spite of all the faithfulness, in spite of everything God has done, listen, even if none of them repented, God is still faithful. The, the option of God being unfaithful is not on the table. It's not on the table. That's, not, that's what Paul is saying. That is not on the table. God being unfaithful is out of the question. It is totally out of the realm of possibilities. And what Paul is saying is this. We, Bradley and I went fit trout fishing while we were on vacation. And, and on the way back, um, we had about an hour and a half drive with the, with the guide. And, and um, you know, I was sharing the gospel with him the, the, in a very conversational way. It was a great conversation. And... and I was reminded of this passage. Listen, he rejected the gospel. But does that make it less true? Unfortunately, he rejected the offer of the gospel. He rejected the forgiveness of his sins through Jesus Christ. But does that make it less true? Does that make God unfaithful? And Paul is saying, no. Listen, you may disagree that 2 plus 2 equals 4. Who's the liar? Who's the fool? 
the gospel of Jesus Christ is true because it's true, not because I say it's true, not because you say it's true, not because you say it's true. It's true because it's true. God is faithful because he's faithful. He's not faithful because you think he's faithful. He's not faithful because maybe you've proven him to be faithful. He's faithful because he's faithful. And that's what Paul is saying. The issue is not about whether we believe. It's true. And that's how deceitful our hearts are. In order to protect ourselves, in order to justify ourselves, it it must be someone else's fault. You know, my daughter, one of her favorite sayings, when things go bad, when things, it's not my fault. It is your fault. 100%. Under the sovereignty of God, it's your fault. Period. She says it all the time. But listen, we're grown up. You know what? We say the same things. We're just not as bold as a fourth grader to say that. We're, we're a little more, we're a little more, we, we can say it in different ways. But that's how deceitful we are. It can't be, it can't be the Jews are saying it can't be our fault. It's got to be God's fault. And, in, and what Paul does here is in, in very wisely, and again, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Paul here in verse 4, look at it, he quotes Psalm 51. Psalm 51, what is Psalm 51? Psalm 51 is David's confession of sin with, with Bathsheba, his adultery with Bathsheba, but also his murder of Uriah. And Paul is using this to make a huge point here. And, and listen, in Psalm 50, he quotes Psalm 51, verse 4. And listen to what David says. Again, he says, Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Here's the point. So that you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. What did David say? What did David confess in his confession of sin, in his repentance of sin? What did he admit to God? That God was totally justified in his condemnation to him. Why? Because he alone is judge. You say, hold on, David. Didn't you sin against Bathsheba? He did. Didn't you sin against Uriah? You murdered him. He did. But ultimately, who was David's sin against? David's sin was against God. Because God is the one that said, do not commit adultery. And God is the one that said, do not murder. And David, the king of Israel, the leader, the greatest king, earthly king they had, admits in Psalm 51 that God was totally justified. You see the point Paul's making? Listen, just because David was Jewish didn't give him a pass on his sin. That's what Paul is saying. Just because of his heritage, he did not get a pass on his sin. Again, that God was totally justified. That's been the whole point Paul has been making from 118 on, that God's wrath due sin is totally justified because he alone is judge. He says, you are totally justified when you speak, God, and you are totally blameless when you judge. And David is making Paul's point for him that God is totally justified and God is totally faithful when he judges sin. 
even the sin of the Jews. Even the sin of the Jews, God's chosen people. David is agreeing with God, which, ironically, that's, that is what repentance is. Don't be fooled. It, repentance is not you feeling sorry about your sin. 2 Corinthians 7 says that will lead you straight to hell. The world feels sorry about their sin. Repentance is agreeing with God that it is sin and turning. David is agreeing with God, agreeing, God, you are right, you are totally justified if you were to condemn me. Why? Because I'm a sinner. And not just a sinner in general, David says, against you and you alone, God, have I sinned. Listen, we're going to get to Romans 3.23 in the next couple weeks, and Paul says this, for all have fallen short, for all have sinned and fall short of the what? Glory of God. What is sin? Sin is not you falling short of your expectations. Sin is not you falling short of someone else's expectations. Sin is you falling short of God's perfect standard of righteousness. His glory. Anything not done to the glory of God. It's falling short. And listen, all, all are guilty of that. Doesn't matter what your heritage is. Doesn't matter what your upbringing was, good or bad. Doesn't matter if you grew up in church or not. Doesn't matter who your parents are or not. We need a righteousness that's outside of ourselves. And listen, what Paul is saying is that even the great David couldn't appeal to anything about himself to to avoid being judged for his sin. Do you catch that? Even the great King David could not appeal to anything about himself, anything about his heritage, anything about being the best king. It could appeal to nothing apart from the mercy of God to avoid the punishment due his sin. That's the point Paul's making. That Jew and Gentile alike will be judged for their sin. But David also makes Paul's point in that God alone has the right to judge sin eternally. Why? Because sin is ultimately against God. You and I do not get to make up the rules on how we're going to appease God for our sin. And listen, all of us have done that, right? All of us have come up in our own minds of how we're going to make it up to God. How we're going to get back in a right standing. Oh, God, if you'll just do this, I'll never miss another Sunday. I mean, I I can't tell how many people I've talked about. Chris, if you'll just come uh, pray for my, if you'll come visit my husband in the hospital, we will come to your church so faithfully, I've never seen him once. Listen, that's fine. I don't mind coming. And I'm careful, I'm, I, even as I, that just came to my mind, because it's our neighbor. I mean, I, I think about it every day. How many times do you think we've made deals with God? How many times do you think we've tried to work out a, a deal with God on our own? How to make amends for our sin on our own. Instead of simply coming to God and saying, God, against you and you alone have I sinned. And listen, when, when my sin is just against Clay Brown or against Raymond or whatever, listen, we can work that out. But when we recognize that our sin is against a holy God, listen, only that holy God gets to make up the way for us to be reconciled. 
When I sin against Raymond, if my sin is just against Raymond, Raymond and I can work out a deal. And typically it's going to be Raymond is going to have to dictate how I make it up to him because I've sinned against him. Listen, we, our sin is sin because a holy God has said it's sin and only that holy God gets to dictate how we can be reconciled regardless of our ethnicity. And David, even King David is saying, God, you are totally justified and right in judging my sin. Did the Jews have advantages? Absolutely, they had the entire Old Testament. They had the treasures and the pictures of grace. They had the revelation of God. They had the the near presence of God. But if they did not believe that word by faith, it didn't matter simply because they had the Old Testament. Listen, let's bring this home for us. I bet every single one of us have four, five, six Bibles sitting around our house, right? We're, We're not desperate for finding a Bible, right? How much good does that Bible do if it just sits on your coffee table? Do you know Bible? Oh, yeah, I got a Bible. Where is it? It sits on the coffee table. You read it? Nope. It's doing you a lot of good. It's not doing you any good just sitting there on the coffee table. Listen, the the sinfulness of man, the human nature of man... We're going to get to this eventually in the application. We're no different. Oh, I came to church. What does that mean? Your washing machine's not going to break? What does that mean? Like God owes you? You came to church this morning? Oh, I gave. Oh, now you really, God really owes you now. Listen, all of us have thought that. When bad things have happened, we've laid out the resume before God of all the things we've done, and we're basically saying, why should this not have happened to me? Privileges, yes. Clemency from God's judgment, nope. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All of us are in need of a, of a righteousness outside of us. Listen to Nehemiah, Nehemiah 9, 32 and 33, just for a second real quick. Now therefore our God, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God, who keeps covenant and loving kindness... Do not let all the hardship seem insignificant before you, which has come upon us, our kings, our princes, our priests, our prophets, our fathers, and all your people, from the days of the kings of Assyria to this day. Listen. However, all the trouble that had come upon Israel, Nehemiah is saying, all this trouble, look at what he says. However, you are just in all that has come upon us, For you have dealt faithfully, but we have acted wickedly. What is the great Nehemiah saying? Was it God that was unfaithful or was it Israel that was unfaithful? Israel. You can go to Lamentations chapter 1 verse 18. Turn over there real quick. Let's look at what he says in Lamentations 1 18. The Lord is righteous. Listen, for I have rebelled against his command. Hear now, all peoples, and behold my pain. My virgins and my young men have gone into captivity. Who's, who, who was responsible? Israel rebelled. God remained faithful. And you see it on your handout. Paul's point is that, that God is just as, the word is just as, 
just as faithful when he judges people's sins as when he fulfills his promises. Please hear that. God is just as faithful when he judges people's sin as when he fulfills promises. Listen, we love the second one. We love to brag on God's faithfulness. You know, it's like I'm a sports guy, the winning team. God is so good. Listen to me, there's a bunch of people in a loser in the locker room who lost, and God is just as good. Right? You get an A on your test, oh, God is so good. Where was God when you failed? Just as good. You know the difference? You probably studied. And, and, and Paul is making the point. God's faithfulness, listen, includes judging sin. I.e., God is justified in his wrath towards sin. That's been Paul's whole point, even to Israel. Nobody gets a pass simply because of who they are or what they've done. God's faithfulness cuts both ways. Judging sin and the blessing. The, th- the, third, the third objection, look at verses 5 and 6. That God dealing with Israel the same as the Gentiles and not giving them a special pass, they argue that it is impugns, the word is impugn, impugns God's justice. And, and this one really here, I mean, it, it gets into the utter wretchedness of us. Listen to this, verse 5. If our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? The word... The God who inflicts wrath is not unrighteous, is he? I am speaking in human terms. May it never be, for otherwise how will he judge the world? Here, here's the lie, and Paul will deal with this also in Romans 6. If my unrighteousness simply extols God's righteousness, if my sin simply shows off his grace, should he really sin? Should he really judge my sin? You see how wretched we are? Now God is unrighteous for judging my sin. Why? Because it shows off his mercy. That's not the point. That'd be like me saying, oh, Karen is so loving, she's so faithful. Watch this. I can have an affair just to show off her unfaithfulness. You see how, you know how foolish that is? Total misunderstanding? I mean, this reeks of the today, well, God makes lemons out of lemonades. That doesn't mean you go pick a bunch of lemons. Okay? Well, everything worked out in the end, so it, could, it must have been all right. That's not true. Because you're going to live with the scars and the wounds of all the stuff that happened while it was working out. God's faithfulness does not promote unfaithfulness or laziness on our part. That's the point. And, and you see it on your handout. To think that we try to avoid culpability or responsibility for our sin in any way is a testimony to our sinfulness. It's not my fault. The devil made me do it. No. You're culpable. And, and nobody, nobody gets immunity from God's judgment because of anything they've done or who they are. And, and that's Paul's point. Paul says this, and Paul's response is verse 6. Then, then how will God judge the whole world? The Jews, we saw this earlier, the Jews would have been all for God judging the sins of the Gentiles, right? Listen, and and even today, we're really good at, oh, God ought to judge them. Oh, God really ought to judge them. Listen, if God doesn't judge your sin, how is he going to judge anybody else's sin? 
And if God is going to judge their sin, he better judge everybody's sin. That's Paul's point. God, you'll see it in Hannah. God is only righteous if he judges all creation, here's the word, equally. You don't get a pass because of your heritage or your ethnicity or anything. Oh, you know what? Melissa Kirkpatrick, she's the church secretary and she does a great, oh, that, that's great. She does great work. That don't deal with her sin. No person gets a pass. And God is going to judge all mankind equally due to their sin and their response to Christ, period. Nobody gets a pass apart from Christ. And that in of itself proves God to be faithful rather than impugning his righteousness. And lastly, in verses 7 and 8, they, they would argue that this falsely promotes excuse me, God's glory. That if Jews and Gentiles are both guilty before sin and, and, it, and they have no immunity to God's judgment, that it falsely promotes God's glory. And this ties in with verses 5 and 6 and what we saw in Objection 3. If through my lie the truth of God abounded for His glory, why am I being judged as a sinner? Why not say as we're slanderously reported and as some claim to say that let us do evil that good may come? That, that argument is so absurd, all Paul has to say is this, their condemnation is just. Again, here's his point. You sit on a handout. Nobody gets special treatment for their sin. Nobody gets it. And that's Paul's point. And what Paul goes on here in verse 9 and following, he, he seeks to further nail, nail down in, one, in quoting the Old Testament here over and over again. He's making his point that this is indeed in line with the Old Testament. What I'm sharing with you, Paul says, doesn't contradict the Old Testament. It fulfills the Old Testament. It proves the Old Testament. And, and in verses 10 through 18 are a string of quotations of the Old Testament. And Paul is showing that this sinfulness of man, of all mankind, depravity of all mankind, is no new theology to Paul. This is exactly what the Old Testament taught. That Jew and Gentile alike, all mankind, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands, none who seeks. And look at verse 9. Again, both Jews and Greeks are under sin. That's the next fill-in there. Every person, regardless of their ethnicity, is under the power of sin. It's not just something you do. It is something you're captive of. Sin. It's not, that's why Colossians 1 says that we need rescue. He has rescued us, verse 13, out of the domain of darkness and transferred us into his glorious kingdom of light. Sin is not just something you do, you're captive to it. You need a rescue. And what he's, he's highlighting again, even in chapter 3 of Galatians, verse 22, Scripture has shut up everyone under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Why? Why do this, Paul, to drive people to the gospel? He's to show the poverty of works. Look at verse 20. Because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, 
for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. No person, you see it on your hand now, can gain acceptance with God through works because we're under sin, and as such, everything we do apart from Christ is stained by sin. I, I was reminded this week as I was thinking about uh, just of Isaiah 64, 6, and it says, Even our deeds done in righteousness are but filthy rags. Think about that. I was trying to think of an illustration, and, and without because there's a mixed crowd in here and all that, but I think about, like, this may sound silly, but it would be like me trying to merit favor with God or wait my way back would be like if I've intentionally burned down your house and then the next day I brought you your favorite picture frame. I went to Hobby Lobby and I got the picture frame that got burned up and I brought it to you and I thought, well, this will make amends. No, no, I burned down your entire house. And we can laugh, we can laugh, but do you see how impoverished that effort would be to be repay the fact that I burned down your entire, all your stuff is gone, and I'm going to give you a picture frame and think that's going to make up for it? That's, the, that's what Isaiah is getting at. That's what Paul is getting at of the poverty of works. We are under sin. Everything we do is stained by sin. Our deeds done in righteousness, the best you got is stained in unrighteousness. You, you can't get away from that. That's what Paul is getting at here. And, and listen, until we grasp that, as humbling as that can be, until we grasp that, we will never value the gospel rightly. Why? Because we think we helped. Oh, but I brought you a picture frame. You know, when the house is all restored, it'd be like you walking into the house. The house has been rebuilt by the grace of God, everything, and you picture up. Remember when I bought you this? And thinking we helped put them back on their feet. I mean, all of us, I think, are, are wise enough to say we, would, we know that would be dumb to do. And yet with God, we try it. I came to church this day. You know, God's thinking, you know what? How did you get up this morning? Breathing my oxygen. Breathing all the energy I gave you. In the life that I gave you. In the resources I gave you. In the ability to do everything you did to get there with what I gave you. You see it? And from 118 to 320, Paul is, again... He is stripping us of every ounce of self-righteousness because we're prone to it. We'll never value the gospel if we bring something to the table. And here's just some conclusions of this section that we can walk away with. Every person is a sinner and as such is accountable to God. Meaning no person is made righteous through obedience to the law. Does obedience matter? Yeah, as an expression of faith. But not in making you righteous. Rather than making us righteous, the law only further exposes our sinfulness. And Paul's going to deal with this in Romans 7 as well. Which proves, again, that God is totally justified in His wrath towards our sin. And the, the obvious end is this. It leaves us looking for a substitute. A substitute righteousness apart from the law. We need a substitute righteousness. And real quick, for the sake of time, hopefully, now that we've seen 118 through 220, hopefully we have a better grasp on what we've seen. 
a couple of couple of applications and and um I like to read a guy by the name of Cole and he I don't want more credit for these if you like these give him credit if you don't like them blame me but but these are his these were these were some applications that that he put forth in, in a book I was reading and and I wanted to share them with you just a couple of applications to 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 noodle on as we walk out of here in this is this special spiritual privileges do not offer you any advantage with God if you do not respond. The word is respond in faith and obedience. But rather, these privileges actually increase your accountability to God. Listen, in the same way that Israel had great privileges, if you grew up in a Christian home, you have an amazing spiritual privilege. The fact that you are listening to God's word right now, an amazing spiritual privilege. Not because of me, not because I've exposed them well, but because it's the word of God and you're hearing it. And Romans 10 says faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. The fact that we sit here today free of charge, free of persecution, free of all that amazing privilege. But if you do not respond by faith, you've missed it. Individually respond by faith, not not your parents' faith, not your siblings' faith, not your spouse's faith, not your friend's faith. With the privilege of hearing God's word week after week comes responsibility. Don't, Don't be like Israel and miss that. Having 18 Bibles in your house. Great privilege, but if you do not read them, again, responsibility. Just having a Bible in your home, just owning a Bible, doesn't bring the security. It's reading the Bible. It's submitting your life to the Bible that you read. Secondly is this. The Bible is a great treasure that God has entrusted to us. Therefore, we should study it and seek to obey it as the only wise way to live rather than simply owning it or carrying it. Listen to what Martin Lloyd-Jones said. So the point, therefore, at which you and I start is this. We say, this Bible is no ordinary book. This is the Word of God. Do we show that we realize that that and what a privilege it is by reading it, by studying it, by delving into it, by spending our time praying over it? He continues to say that we should not just quickly read over a few verses as a matter of custom in the morning before rushing off to more important things. Rather, he says... Here, here in the Bible, God is speaking to me. Understand that. He says this, if we really believed that the Bible is God's direct word to us, we would not spend more time each day reading the newspaper and other things than we do seeking to understand and apply the oracles of God. Do, do we spend more time here? Than anything else? Or do we think just carrying it with us? Just owning it? Just knowing a few of the stories? That's, that's going to cut it. We're going to stand before God and we're going, I know that story. I remember when you built that ark and all the animals were... Okay, good, good. Because most non-believers know that. Is this the only wise way to live? Is this truly the word of God? Thirdly, 
Third, this. If you are fighting against God, you are fighting a losing battle, and the only way to win is to surrender to Him. Surrender. Listen, there are things in this Word that are going to be difficult to understand. There are going to be circumstances in our lives that are difficult to understand. But the question, and I'm not saying we shouldn't wrestle with them. But there are two ways to approach these hard matters. Number one, you can come as a submissive child and you can ask the Father to give you more light. Like what James 1.5 says, if any of you lacks wisdom, ask the Father who gives generously. You can come as a submissive child and seek to understand and yet submit even when you don't understand. Or you can come as a critic and demand that God gives you answers, that he owes it to you, and that he's got to run the world the way that you see fit to run the world. Those are two different ways to approach God. And if you're going to, prove, if you're going to seek to prove that you're right and God is wrong, listen to me, you're on thin ice. And, and you see it on your handout. Even though you may not understand God or his ways, you have no right to contend against him or accuse him of wrong. And the book of Job, that's one of the purposes of the book of Job. And you get to Job chapter 40, verse 4, and listen to what Job said. Let, let, let me read it, just, just one of my favorite passages. I, these are the kind of just things that I sarcastically said to people when I was in high school and got in a lot of trouble for it. But I, I, listen to what Job, the Lord said to Job, Will the fault fighter contend with the Almighty? Let him who reproves God answer God, answer it. Listen, then Job answered the Lord. This is after Job has questioned and made all these accusations. And listen to what he says. Behold, I am insignificant. What can I reply to you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I dare say that's probably a posture that I wished I would have taken a long time ago. That I, should, I even today. Just put your hand over your mouth. This is after God has said, listen, where were you when I did this? Where were you when I did this? Hey, where were you when that goat gave birth? Where were you when I laid the foundations? Hey, when I put a boundary on the oceans and I set the moon and the stars in place and I did all this. Hey, where were you, Job? Did I ask you? Did, did, I, did I consult with you? Matter of fact, God, God says, did I consult with anybody? The answer is No. He doesn't need to. Why? Because he's sovereign, he's omniscient, and he's faithful, among other things. And whatever he does, listen, ultimately is for his glory. And he's just. And when we come to God, even in the tough times, listen, we need to make sure we come with a submissive spirit. A submissive, not a defiant spirit, submissive spirit. Lastly is this, be careful not to use your questions and objections as an excuse for not repenting of your sin and trusting Christ. Listen, this individual that we were with had all kinds of excuses. When we were up in North Carolina, I was telling you we were sharing Christ with the, the, the guide there. He had all kinds of excuses. Why are there so many divisions amongst the Christian church? Why is that church this way? Why is, he just kept asking and asking. And I was, you know, graciously as I could answering his questions. But in the, the day, listen, here it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. 
He was using those as an excuse not to repent of his sin. Listen, he's not going to get a pass on his sin. Joe was his name. Joe's not getting a pass on his sin because the church has denominations. Joe's not going to get a pass on his sin because he was a great fishing guide. And to use some objection about God or the Bible, to use that objection to deny the clear or dodge the clear truth of the Bible about Jesus Christ, that He is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through Him. Listen, you're not going to get a pass because of your objections. I think all of us in here would say there are parts of this Bible that we have a hard time grappling with. Peter, in 2 Peter 3, says himself in verse 14 that Paul's writings, many of which are hard to comprehend or understand, nonetheless are Scripture. And listen, it's on your hand out there. God's faithfulness, listen, and this is, this, this, this is going to cut some of us. God's faithfulness is not ultimately to any one group or person, but it's to himself. It's not about you or me. God's faithfulness has to do with his character. And you know who God is most faithful to? Himself. Himself. Isaiah 42, 8. I am the Lord God, that alone is my name. I will not share my glory with another. And, and God is not faithful. If, and God is not faithful. You see it there. I had to read it. I was like, did I mess that up? God is not faithful to himself, true to himself, unless he punishes sin. Unless he deals with sin. No less than you or I would be a faithful parent if we don't discipline our children. Hebrews 12 says the Lord disciplines those whom he loves. That goes to Christians. But as non-Christians, he's got to judge their sin. How else would he judge anyone's? And all people, regardless of who they are, they need a Savior. They need a righteousness that is out side of themselves and that that is that is paul's point you see it there none are righteous the last fill in none are righteous treasure this listen god is not obligated to love you or to serve you no matter how much you think you deserve it his character demands it and what we deserve listen what you and i deserve from god apart from the gospel is wrath do our sin. And yet next week, some of the greatest words in all, I've looked forward to 321 through 26 forever. But now, in spite of everything he said in 118 through 320, but now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been revealed, being witnessed in the law and prophets. You need a righteousness? God says, I got it in Christ. Amen?